morning. Thanks, Dave, for reading scripture for us. Um, my name is Bill Gorman, and I serve here at Christ Community as the Brookside Campus Pastor, and I just am so glad that you're here with us this morning. Thanks for, for coming out on this uh, rainy morning, but uh, if your lawn is anything like mine, uh, it's in desperate need of some, of some rain because I don't water, so uh, it's starting to turn a little brown in spots. So I'm really thankful uh, for this rain um, this morning. And uh, if you're just joining us for the first time uh, this Sunday, we're in the middle of a series asking the question, does it really matter uh, what we believe um, about uh, the kind of historic Christian doctrines? And so this morning we're going to ask the question, what is it, does it really matter what we believe about the church um, as we look at this text that, that, uh, that Dave read for us just a moment ago? And um, before we do that, though, I always like to open our time of looking into God's Word with prayer because we know that in order to really understand it, we always are going to need uh, His help Um, So let's do that now. Ask for his help in understanding his word. Uh, Father in heaven, we are thankful that you've revealed us to us uh, yourself in the word, this this treasure, the Bible um, that you've given to us, and that it points us to the the supreme and living word, Jesus. And I pray that as we um, spend time this morning looking at your design for the church, uh, that we would come to more deeply love uh, the local church and the one who is the head of that church, Jesus. We pray this in his name for his glory. Amen. Well, have you ever heard the statement that one of the biggest problems in the world is religious extremists or radicals? I'm sure we've all all heard this. Maybe we've even said this at some point, that that one of the biggest problems in our world is, is religious radicals, extremists, And and honestly, as it's commonly used, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, there are terrible things that are done in the name of religion, that are done in the name of God, even in the name of the church, every day around the world. And even here in our own country, whether it's funeral picketing Westboro Baptist folks or the Islamic State in Iraq and Assyria who are oppressing and and persecuting not only Christians and non-Muslims, but also even less extreme Muslims. And many in our Western culture, many of us today, would would say that religion and the church are actually the cause of a lot of division and violence in the world, and that the way to cause a lot of violence and division to cease is, is for people of all religions to sort of believe less, to become more moderate, to become kind of more bland, to, to simply coexist, as the bumper sticker puts it. However, massive violence and murder have have also been perpetrated in the name of of moderating or removing religion as well, right? I mean, you think of the millions that were killed under Stalin and Mao in Russia and China in the 20th century. But in the case of the church, in the case of Christianity, which for over the past 2,000 years without question has been guilty, has been culpable of some great evils, The answer is not to become less radical, but to become more radical. Now, some of you are are at this moment thinking, wait, what what did I just show up to here at church? This doesn't seem like the kind of church I thought it was, or or is the pastor telling me I need to become more radical? That, That doesn't seem right, and if you know Bill, that doesn't seem like him. But, but let me explain what I mean. The, the word radical, it comes from the Latin word radix, which means root. 
So things that are radical go back to the roots. Radical change isn't change at the surface, where radical change is change that happens deep down, a root level, heart level change, right? We talk about that. It was a radical change. This isn't something that happened at the surface. It's something that happened deep down. And the church becomes more of what it's supposed to be, not when it becomes more moderate, but when it goes deeper into the heart of what it makes it unique. What rescues and protects the church from becoming oppressive, what protects it from becoming power-hungry, is going more deeply into what makes it unique. Not becoming less what makes it unique, but actually remembering at the core of what makes it more unique. So we need to become more radical, not less. And, and let me give you a, just a practical example of this. When, when Martin Luther King, uh, the great civil rights leader and, and pastor and preacher, went to racist churchgoers in the South, he didn't tell them, since you've used Christianity to justify slavery, what you need to do is, is believe Christianity less. You need to give up on Christianity he says, no, you, you haven't understood Christianity at all. You need to go deeper in. Not you need less Jesus or less Christianity or less gospel. No, you need more. You haven't fully understood. So he didn't say to the Christians, these church-going folks in the South, you need to become less Christian. No, you haven't been Christian enough. You need to go deeper in. So if we're going to be the church that God has designed us to be, we need to be more radical, more deeply rooted, not less in what makes the church unique. So does it really matter what we believe about the church? What is it that, that really makes the church unique? It's, it's not holding services or, or meeting in small groups or, or doing community projects or running homeless shelters, though the church can and should do all of those things, but but Muslims and Mormons and Shriners and, and non-religious people do all of those things. And, and sometimes they actually do them far better than we do. So, so it's not those things that makes the church unique. What is it? What is it that makes the church truly unique? Well, in the passage that Dave read for us in Ephesians chapter 4, there, we see at least three things that make the church unique. We see its supernatural calling— it's selfless love, and it's diverse unity. So it's supernatural calling, it's selfless love, and it's diverse unity. First we see in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 4 that the church has a supernatural calling. Take a look at what the Apostle Paul, if you have one of the pew Bibles or a Bible on your phone, open it up. I'd love for you to kind of follow along with us. Take a look at verse 1. And, and look at what the Apostle Paul writes here. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And Ephesians is a letter that Paul wrote to a local church that he had started in the city of Ephesus. And Paul spent two years in Ephesus. He'd started this church. He loved the church. When, when he left the church to go to another place, there's this great scene in Acts chapter 20 where there, he's weeping. This is a place that's dear to him. And when Paul brought the good news about Jesus' life and death and resurrection to Ephesus, certainly not everyone uh, believed that good news or, or, or bought into what he was saying. But those who did, both Jews and non-Jews alike, experienced a radical life change. And here in verse 1, Paul reminds them that the change and transformation they experienced 
wasn't a result of something that they initiated. No, it all started with a call. You see, the church is a called people. You are part of the church not because of how great you are or certainly not because of how great I am. You are part of the church because you've been called. Now, often we use the language of of calling to describe sort of our our career path, right? We talk about, oh, she has a calling to medicine or, or his calling is in sales. But when we think about the literature of the Bible and Christian literature in general around the New Testament, the language of calling is almost exclusively used in the divine kind of religious sense of a calling to rescue, a calling to salvation. You see, we're first called to someone before we're called to something. We're first and foremost called to a person before we're called to a career or a vocation. And this is, Paul doesn't state it directly here, but the implication is clear. If, if there's a caller, if we have this calling, th- there must be someone who's calling us, right? I mean, think about your phone. It, it doesn't just ring at on its own for no reason, right? Unless it's broken. Maybe you have a phone that does that. Um, but when your phone rings, it's because someone is calling you. We don't say to someone, oh, what called you earlier? No, we say, who called you earlier? God calls us to himself. That's why the local churches call a supernatural call. You are not here this morning by accident, by, by chance, by self-determination. You see, the church is not a self-selecting people. Everyone in the church has been called. And you see, not only does God call us to himself as individuals, he does that. He calls each one of you, each one of us personally to himself. But when he does that, he also always calls us together as a church. So he calls us individuals, but he also calls us together. Because the church isn't, isn't a building, it isn't a place. The church is a people. It's not a denomination. The church is a people. We, you, are the church. Sometimes we talk about the language of, of the church with a big C and the church is a little C. The, the universal church with a big C is the church is God's people all throughout uh, the history of the church around the world today. And then the little C church is, is local churches like this one, which are a manifestation of that larger church around the world. Our calling to God in Jesus through the local church is an amazing calling. And when we could spend all morning talking about the benefits, the realities of that, we don't have time, but I want to mention two things. First, God's call is the only reason that anyone is a Christian. You aren't a Christian because you, you come to a building. You aren't a Christian because you do good things or you try not to do bad things. If you are a Christian, it is because God has called you to himself. And this means that even when you feel undesirable, even when you feel ashamed, even when you feel unwanted, that there is always someone 
who wants you, someone who has called you, someone who's done everything that he can to bring you to himself. Second, God's call is amazing because he's called us together as the church. This, this means that, that we together in this place, that there is always a place for you to belong and to be known. Even if you live far away from your family, maybe you live far away from friends, maybe you moved here to go to college or, or to take a job, and you don't know anyone in this city. But if you're part of the church, you, are, you belong here. This is a place for you to be known and loved and cared for. Maybe, you don't even, maybe it's not just that you live far away from family and friends. Maybe you're estranged from your family. Maybe you don't have friends. In the local church, God has called you into a place where you belong, where you can be known, where you can be cared for. So when God calls us, he, he calls us out of light, out of darkness, into his marvelous light. He calls us from our, our sin and our selfishness into a selfless Love. And this is what Paul means when he says to his readers in verse 1 to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. This is the second thing that makes the church unique it's, it's our selfless love. It's not only our calling, but this love that, which we are all to be marked by. And this is what Paul describes next. If you look at verses 2 and 3, he says in verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The language of walking is, is what's used to describe the way that we live our lives. So, so when you, the Bible talks about the, our walk or the way that we walk, it's, it's a metaphor that describes the way that you live the entirety of your life, Monday uh, through Sunday, everything about your life. That's, that's the way that you conduct yourself. And Paul says there are four things that should mark out the way that we uh, as, as people in the church should walk. He says, first, that we should walk in all humility. Now, today, I think we generally regard humility as, as a positive characteristic, as a good thing. But humility was not seen as a virtue in the Greek and Roman world when Paul was writing this. This, this would have actually probably shocked a number of Paul's readers. Because at that time, bragging, boasting were, were prized. And, and, and let's be honest. At one level, aren't, I mean, really boasting and bragging are still sort of prized today. Um, but we just have to be a little sneakier about it, right? We, we, have you ever heard of this phenomenon on social media called the, the humble brag? Have you heard of this? So, so the humble brag is where you sort of wrap a, a, a boasting, a bragging about something you're doing, but you sort of wrap it up in a complaint. So it's, let me just give you some examples. Here's one. That, so you could tweet this out. Um, hey, hey, look at... Uh, <laughs> so you say, I, I, I can't believe that it's been raining all week here in St. Lucia. Right? So it's like, wait, okay. Or, man, I can't believe how long I had to wait in line for these free front row seats to the Justin Timberlake concert. <laughs> See, in, there's a complaint, right? Oh, it's raining. I had to wait in line. But in the midst of that, you're really bragging, hey, look, I'm on vacation in a beautiful tropical paradise. Or, or I've got front row seats to the sold-out concert. Humility, though, it, it, Jesus turns all that on its head. Because when, when you know that you are called and loved by him, you don't have to relentlessly manage your self-image. You don't have to self-promote. You can relax and genuinely enjoy other people. 
You don't think too highly or too lowly of yourself. In fact, you just find yourself actually not thinking about yourself all that much. You find yourself thinking of other people. You're not concerned with with the people you're hanging out with, whether they're popular or unpopular, whether they're going to make you look good or bad, are they going to help advance my career or hold me back? When you have that genuine humility, you're able to just enjoy the people you're with for their sake. Next, Paul says the church should be marked by gentleness. Uh, This doesn't mean that we don't say hard things to one another. At times, we have to say hard things to one another. But what it does mean is that we are never harsh or short with one another. (laughs) Proverbs 15.1, Proverbs is a collection of wisdom in the Old Testament. It gives us this little nugget of wisdom that that will transform your relationships. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You want to transform your relationships with with your roommate, with, with your spouse, with people at work? Just start putting that into practice. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And and again, gentleness wasn't viewed as a strength in the Greco-Roman world, but both gentleness and humility are actually marks of deep strength and self-control. Again, when you know that you are called and accepted, you can speak the truth without being shrill or caustic because, because you do so out of love for the other person, not because you have to be right or because you have to prove them wrong. Third, Paul says the church is to be marked by patience. Now, patience can have two different senses. The the first sense of patience is when we're waiting for something that's not here yet, or we have to wait for something to come. So, you know, I have to wait in line to to get money out of the the ATM, or or kids, maybe your your parents say, well, you got to be patient for your birthday or patient for Christmas to come. But the patience that Paul's talking about here is a little bit different. The patience that Paul's talking about here is the second sense. It's a relational patience. It's the patience that that allows you not to to snap under provocation. The sort of patience that that Rachel has to have uh, with me as as a husband when I uh, continually clean our house by um, just taking any clutter I find and shoving it in any random drawer or closet so she can never find it. But for me, it's like, well, it's out of the way. It's clean. The house is clean. It's this kind of relational dynamic that requires patience with someone who's difficult to be with sometimes. You see, we need tons of this sort of patience in the church. Because look around. (laughs) Look at the person sitting next to you, behind you. If you really want to get to know the people in this place, I can almost guarantee that you're going to need to be patient with them at some point. And I can absolutely guarantee they're going to need to be patient with you. Because all of us are way more annoying and way more frustrating to live life with than we can begin to imagine, okay? In fact, this word patience is often used in the Bible to describe how God relates to us. Both gentleness and patience are aspects of of the fruit of the Spirit, the, the character that God begins to work in us through His Spirit. Finally, Paul adds to this, phrase about patience. He says, bearing with one another in love. A better translation is probably putting up with one another in love. 
And you might be saying, okay, can we do better than that? Can we hope for more than just putting up with one another? And, and I would say, yes, absolutely, we, we can and we should strive for more than that. But there will be times when putting up with one another is what we have to do. Before we think of ourselves too sort of highly here, even Jesus had moments like this. There's a moment in Mark chapter 9 where Jesus is with his disciples and he's been off doing some other things and and he comes back and his disciples have been trying to heal someone and they haven't been able to do it and they've misunderstood who Jesus is. And this is what he says to him in Mark chapter 9. He says, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? But the key here is bearing with putting up with one another in love. This isn't a complaining, snarking, kind of bearing with. No, this is putting up with one another in love, knowing that there are times when you are just as difficult to be around as the person you are putting up with. And actually knowing, most importantly, that God has put up with you in love far more than you will ever have to put up with anyone else. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So so these qualities are are vital to maintaining the final and perhaps actually the most surprising unique characteristic of the church, and that's its diverse unity. Notice in verse 3, Paul says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And what we see in verses 4 through 6 is the unity and the diversity of the church is rooted in the caller and creator of the church. So you look at what Paul writes next in verse 4. He says, There is one body and one spirit, continuing verse 4 through 6, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And those verses were probably part of an early Christian creed. There's one body, that each local body, each local church is a representation of the whole body. There's one spirit, the, the same spirit of God indwells each one of us as a follower of Jesus. That's what we learned about last week when Paul preached on the spirit. One hope, we're all headed to the same good end. One Lord, we all have one master, Jesus. He's the head of the body. One faith, and the, the idea of faith in this context is, is a way of speaking of the gospel. There's one gospel One baptism, the only baptism that exists is a a baptism into the church by the Spirit. One God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all things. The church, as God designed it, contains massive diversity. When you think about the church around the world, even our local church here, it has a massive diversity in age and gifts and abilities and gender and race and ethnicity and language and backgrounds, etc. And yet, in all of that diversity, there is profound unity. This is one of the brilliant things about the church, that it actually makes you more of who you are. It never erases your uniqueness, and yet it unites you at a deeper level than ever possible anywhere else. And why is this? Because the church is ultimately a reflection of God himself, who is both diverse and unified, three and yet one. There is one God 
who is three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Each one is, is God, and yet each one is not the other. There's inseparable unity and yet undeniable diversity. So this is a, a great diagram that shows that. Each one of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is God, but they're not one another. So there's dramatic, profound diversity and yet absolute unity. The great English preacher of last century, John Stott, makes this point powerfully. He writes, the fundamental unity of the church is as indestructible as the fundamental unity of the Godhead. He says, you can no more divide the unity of the church than you can divide the unity of the Godhead. The Father creates the one family. The one Lord Jesus creates the one faith, one hope, and one baptism. And the one Holy Spirit creates the one body. And the body metaphor, which Paul mentions here, is a, is a perfect picture of this unity and diversity, isn't it? I mean, think about your, your body for a moment. I mean, your body is made up of, of different systems, different organs and tissues, different types of cells. At, at one level, right, your, your heart and your, and your brain couldn't be more different. And yet they're both profoundly unified in one body. And they couldn't exist without the other. And the same is, the true of the, is true of the church. There is true unity and vital diversity. Diversity is not optional. Now, at this point, you're probably thinking, but what about all the different denominations? And what about that saying that isn't Sunday the most segregated time in America? That doesn't seem like unity to me, Bill. There's two things. There's a lot we could say. There's two things to consider. First, Paul makes the point that, that the unity of the church is a reality, whether we see it or, or live into it or not. Because in verse 3, he doesn't call us to make the church unified. The Spirit has unified us. But he calls us to maintain the unity that is already a reality by the work of the Spirit. This is actually a major theme in the whole book of Ephesians because there were both Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles in Ephesus. And, and these were radically different people who were really opposed to one another. The, the Jews and the Gentiles, these groups were as different and opposed to one another as any two different uh, contemporary racial, ethnic, or, or socioeconomic groups today. And the church was the first place that people from every background gathered together on purpose and worshiped and lived life together and loved one another. For example, in the book of Acts, and the book of Acts tells the story of how the church spread after Jesus, we see this amazing thing that happens when the gospel comes to the city of Philippi. When the gospel comes to Philippi, there's this woman, Lydia. She's a really successful professional woman, very wealthy. And then there's a blue-collar prison guard. And then there's an enslaved, abused, demon-possessed girl. And all of them encounter the gospel, and all of them end up in the same church together in Philippi. Those three people would have never interacted in Philippi otherwise. But because of the gospel, they now are in community with one another. You can read about that in Acts chapter 16. Pastor Tim Keller points out that because the gospel removes both fear and pride, people get along inside the church who would never get along outside of it. Because the church is made up of such different people, though, it requires work 
to preserve and show forth the unity that we have in the Spirit. It isn't easy. And our natural tendency is to think about unity in terms of making people more like me. <laughs> we don't often explicitly think that, but, but don't we subtly think that when there's conflict or a division, don't we kind of go, thought go through our mind, well, if, if they were just more like me, if, if they saw things the right way, i.e. my way, then, then we wouldn't have this problem. But you see, unity doesn't happen when people become more like me. Unity happens when I become more like Jesus. Unity happens not when people become more like you, but when you become more like Jesus. And so you may be wondering, why is there a bicycle wheel up here? Is this just like leftover? No, this is, I wanted to show you this this morning. I think this is a powerful picture of this. Imagine, okay, here's, here's me and here's you on the outside of this wheel. If we stay on the outside and just try to become more like one another, we always will stay apart. We're never going to come together, right? If we stay on the outside. But if, if Jesus is in the center, if we say, I'm going to not try to become more like them or have them try to become more like me, but if I try to become more like Jesus, then we'll slowly find ourselves becoming more and more unified, growing closer together. As long as we stay out here, we'll always be far apart from one another. But the more we grow toward Christ, becoming more like him, the more unified we become See, unity happens not when people become more like me, but when I become more like Jesus. One of the ways that we declare and make this unity visible is in celebrating baptism and communion. These are sometimes called ordinances or, or sacraments of the church. And, and what is the point of these things? We celebrate communion every week here. We have baptism services. Why, why do we do that? Well, I love the way the, the document called the New City Catechism puts this. It says, baptism and the Lord's Supper are visible signs and seals that we are bound together as a community of faith by Jesus' death and resurrection. Our statement of faith explains that baptism and the Lord's Supper visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. Baptism looks back to the work of Christ rescuing us. Communion looks forward and backwards. Baptism is a public declaration to all people that you have trusted Christ and belong to him and his church. And if you are this morning here and you have trusted Christ, if you're following Jesus, you say, he's my only hope for salvation, and you haven't been baptized yet, I would encourage you. We have a baptism service coming up in a few weeks, uh, Saturday, August 16th. I would love for you to be baptized. I'd love to talk with you about that. So if you say, I'm following Jesus, and I've never been baptized, I've trusted him, but I've never taken that step, I'd love to invite you to consider that. If you have been baptized— I would invite you to come on Saturday, the 16th, and celebrate with those who are being baptized. Remember your own baptism in that. Rejoice with those who are taking that step. You see, there's no pride or division in the baptism pool or in the communion line. We all come to the water and to the table on the basis of our desperate need for forgiveness and in our shared hope in Jesus for rescue reconciliation, and restoration. What is it that divides us? Gender, culture, 
race, ethnicity, money, socioeconomic status, really anything that we, that we build our identity on other than Jesus. So what we need to do is pursue what holds us together rather than what tears us apart. We need to fight for unity in the midst of the diversity. Fight for unity even when it hurts, even when it's difficult. Because you have more in common with the believers in this room and other believers in your life than with anyone else on the planet. Even if it feels like you have nothing in common. So the question as we come to the end here for us is, is are we making every effort and Paul says in verse 3 that we should be eager to maintain this unity, that we should, we should make every effort toward that end. So are we making every effort to, to live in a manner worthy of our calling? This is where, where spiritual disciplines like prayer and, and community groups and, and studying the Bible and accountability, that's where these things come into play because it's not the desire that makes the difference, right? It's discipline that makes the difference. My desire uh, to run a 5K doesn't get me to run a 5K. It's, it's the discipline of it. The difference between wanting to run it and actually running it is discipline. Are we making every effort to love the local church to which we've been called? Are we faithfully serving and, and, and giving of our time and our gifts and our resources? Dave was up here mentioning that we'd love to invite you to serve on our children's ministry team. It, he said, you know, email him after or whatever. I would encourage you on those clipboards, if you're interested and say, yeah, I'd like to find out more about that, just write next to your name, Children's Ministry, on the clipboard before you go, and we'll send you an email. We'd love to connect with you in that way. Are, are you serving? Are you giving of your, of your time, your resources, your abilities? Do we think about, do we dream about how we can be more effective together to advance the mission of the gospel in our neighborhood? And maybe you're here this morning and say, Bill, I, man, I just, I came for the first time, or I'm just here because my wife or my boyfriend brought me and I don't even buy all this church stuff. Maybe the first step for you is just, maybe just give church a try. Say, I'm willing to come back one more time and, and just give this place a try. And are we making every effort to name and to repent of disunity? In our relationships, where, where is fear or pride causing division? Is there someone in your, in your family, maybe in, in your community group, in our church family that you need to seek forgiveness from? In, in our neighborhood, do we lament and pray for God to heal the divisions that exist in our city that, that bleed over into the life of the church? The, the division of the city along racial and economic lines at, at Troost or, or at State Line? Do, do we have a posture, not, not only of a one time, but ongoing reconciliation with those who are different than us, of repentance and forgiveness? And again, not just a, a one time, like let's have a reconciliation time, but an ongoing, active posture of reconciliation and repentance. This is so hard, and it requires massive amounts of humility and gentleness and patience, and bearing with one another. But it's worth it because God has nothing less in mind than this for his church. 
We said at the beginning that the the key to preventing the church from becoming oppressive or power-hungry was for it to become more radical, not less. And the reason that radical Christianity is so transformative is that the bright center of Christianity is a man dying on his cross for enemies. And when we become more like that man who's dying on the cross for his enemies, we become more humble, more gentle, more selfless, more sacrificial, more courageous and strong on behalf of others. Unity is what we've been called to as a church. Are we making every effort to see it preserved and maintained? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you have called us together in one body. I'm so thankful for this local church, for Christ's community, for the Brookside campus. I pray that you would make us unified and that you would use us as a force for good for our city. I ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. Like I mentioned earlier, we, we celebrate communion every week here at Christ Community as a, as a way, as our, as our doctrinal statement says, it nurses and feeds us, it, it reminds us, it tangibly expresses the gospel to us. So if you're new, let me explain how we do this here. There's, there's four communion stations around the room, stations. There's two up front and then there's two in the back. And this station in the back has gluten-free communion elements um, available if, if that's something that you need. And you don't have to be a member here at Christ Community to take communion. Um, if you have trusted Jesus, if you're looking to him alone as your hope for rescue from your sins, then you are welcome at the table. If you haven't embraced Jesus yet, if you're here just exploring what it means to follow him, who he is, I just say this is not a thing that you have to participate in. I just invite you to use this time to to think about who Jesus is and, and what we've talked about this morning. Ask him to help you grow, to help you watch for him. Well, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said to his disciples, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus calls us to do this in remembrance of him. Remember, there's no pride in the communion line, only a shared desperation and a shared hope in our one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So come to the table when you're ready.